All right, Ruth chapter 1, <clears throat> Ruth chapter 1, and uh, we'll be in verses 6 through 13 this evening. And uh, this, I'm calling a paragraph as far as what we're looking at is uh, this uh, next section. Of course, last week we uh, looked at the decision of um, uh, Elimelech and Naomi to go down to Moab. We talked about that in a fair amount of detail. And uh, this evening we'll pick up in verse 6 and then go through verse 13. Really, this kind of goes through verse 22, but there's just no way to cover all of that this evening. And uh, so we have it broken apart there. Uh, I've titled this next section, Naomi's Despair. And uh, that comes from the final segment of verse uh, 13 in which Naomi says, It grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And uh, that word grieveth is actually, it's a, it's a verb, uh, but it's the same root that she describes later on when she goes back to Bethlehem. And they say, oh, look, it's Naomi. And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which if you remember, that was pleasant. Uh, but instead, call me Mara. Okay, because I'm bitter or there is bitterness there. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The word grieveth is the same word or it's the same root word for bitterness uh, that is there. And I'm not saying that Naomi is bitter of heart, uh, such as we see in the warning to the Hebrews, uh, beware lest any root of bitterness uh, would take hold and many people would be defiled in that. And I'm not saying that Naomi had that same kind of a spirit, but I think she was saying that my life went from pleasant to very unpleasant. Um, and uh, this then is a time of despair for her. Um, she views what has happened to her as the hand of the Lord against her. Uh, some might consider this chastisement. Uh, I don't know the mind of God in all of this. She said this, that the hand of the Lord has uh, dealt um, bitterly against me, if we can use that phrase, or the hand of the Lord is against me. Um, and, you know, was this chastisement? You know, was it just a natural thing that uh, as far as uh, Elimelech dying and then Malon and Chilion doing that, uh, was the Lord doing this to bring just chastisement on her? What was the judgment then on Elimelech and Malon and Chilion? Uh, I don't know everything that would be taking place in the mind of the Lord there, uh, but uh, we should recognize that it was the Lord who was doing all of this. And I'll give some thoughts on that as we go through. So it may be considered chastisement, uh, but remember what chastisement is. Chastisement is, in reality, the hand of the Lord, but it is coming from a hand of love. You remember what uh, Solomon said, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and then repeated in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. And I would definitely say that, that it is the hand of the Lord uh, that is directing in the life of Naomi, that is bringing her back to the point where she should be, uh, and that is guiding her back to what we would call the place of blessing. Um, and so when we look at that, um, even though Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 was written by her great-great-grandson Solomon, uh, the truth is eternal. Uh, and the truth existed even before it was written down. Um, and so when we consider this, what the Lord is doing or what is happening in the life of Naomi is a result of the Lord's love for her, okay? Uh, that even though she says that the, the hand of the Lord has been against me, um, you know, you can talk about pressure on something. Um, that, you know, there, there are times when a, a, an adult may be helping a child along, one who's just toddling along and learning to walk, and the child may feel like the parent is pushing, okay? But perhaps the parent is guiding. 
Um, and I think that we can see that in the life of Naomi, that God was actually working to guide her where she was. <clears throat> the reality is that chastisement is grace and a proof of the reality that we are the children of God. Um, you remember in Hebrews chapter 12, whenever the author of Hebrews is quoting that, after he has uh, told the um, believers there that he's writing to the Hebrews, he's writing to them, and after he's told them at the beginning to take uh, or to, to look at the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 11, and then he tells them to consider Jesus, uh, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and so forth. But then he went on to remind them that, look, sometimes you're going to feel some bad things. Don't forget that's the chapter chastisement of the Lord, okay? And he does that because he loves you. He's wanting to correct you. And then he went on to say he does it to his children. And if there isn't chastisement, then that's probably a sign that that one is not the child of God. Um, And so chastisement is actually grace. It's God working in the life of one of his children. Uh, Have you ever thought of this, that whenever God chastises a person, he is actually helping them in preparation for the judgment seat of Christ? You know, that whenever God stops me from doing something, he's actually helping me to be better prepared for the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Frankly, and and this may be a new thought for uh, you at some point, but uh, we recognize that there is a sin unto death, okay? And the Apostle John says you shouldn't pray for it, uh, you know, but we do recognize that it's happened. And I think that we could probably throughout our lives look back at some people and recognize uh, that there was a believer that God realized, that God knew that they had uh, come to the end of their usefulness and he ended their life on this earth early. Okay, think of it in this manner. What he did is he kept them from going on in sin. He ended their life in sin. From an earthly perspective, we think, oh, they died way too early. But from an eternal perspective, he kept them from going any further in some sins that they shouldn't have been involved in. Uh, and God views, those, views things in a, in a, in a uh, temporal mindset that we don't have, okay? He's infinite, okay? He looks at things from beginning to end all at once. We only see things from this small snapshot in eternity where we are now. Um, all of that to come back to, the, the reality is that chastisement is grace. And so though Naomi looked at this as bitterness, as, as grievous, as the hand of the Lord against her, the reality is, is that this is God's grace that is bringing her back to where he wants her to be. You'll see that in a word that we look at here in just a moment. <clears throat> Unfortunately, in the midst of despair, such as Naomi was living, it is not easy to call those truths to mind. Whenever we're going through difficult circumstances, it is not always easy to think, this is God's grace. This is God directing my life. Okay. Uh, And I think Naomi would have come to that point eventually. So we'll walk through the passage of Scripture. Before we do, though, as we are, I want to point out what Naomi saw as the hand of the Lord against her, that it was in reality the loving hand of the Lord guiding her. Um, We look at this historically, but I would say it's a blessed man (laughs) uh, who uh, is able to have the perspective of this is grace, even if it is chastisement in the midst of something. Uh, I watched a video this morning of a man who had confessed to God in prayer one particular afternoon that something wasn't right in his life. He wasn't living in any kind of open sin or even private sin that he knew of, but he just knew something in my life is not right. Something is not focused the way it should be in his family and ministry. And um, that very evening, he was involved in a very bad accident which altered his life physically uh, for the remainder of his life. And uh, in that, he acknowledged this was the grace of God. 
that did this. And the Lord used it to grow him and to change him. Difficult circumstances uh, are not always looked at that way, but blessed is the man who can realize that this is the grace of God. The difficult circumstances which I'm enduring, he's using to conform me to the image of Christ. Uh, my dad would use the phrase kind of tongue-in-cheek sometimes, spiritual sandpaper, <laughs> okay? He's polishing off the rough edges to make me more what I need to be. <clears throat> um, the word turn or return is the word that we're going to look at in several different ways this evening. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word shub uh, and is often translated as repent, okay? That's the idea that one is turning from one thing to the other, <clears throat> It's not translated as repent in this passage. Uh, it is either turn or return, um, but uh, notice how often it is used. Okay, I'm going to point it out to you. Notice, first of all, in verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, the end of verse 7, um, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went uh, on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, verse 8, Go, return each to her mother's house, then down to verse 10. And they say unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Verse 11, Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Verse 12, she said again, Turn again, my daughters. Go your way. Uh, and that'll be all those that we see this evening, the first six times. But then notice verse 15, um, down toward the end, her people and go into her gods. And she uh, returned after, or she tells her, Return after thy sister-in-law. Uh, use the word return there. Verse 16, and Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. Then down in verse 21, uh, it's the same word, the same root and the idea. I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again. Okay, that is uh, not turn or return, but it's the same root, the same idea there as far as bringing back. Verse 22, it's used twice. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And uh, so these are all directional ideas. Uh, some of them we would recognize as being physical and others would have a spiritual flavor to them. Uh, but in this, these uh, 12 times that it's used in this particular chapter, uh, by the way, it's only used a couple more times throughout the remainder of the book in chapter 2 and chapter 4, uh, but here it's used 12 times in this first chapter and a beginning in verse 6. And uh, though I'm not saying in this that Naomi is repenting, what I am saying is that Naomi is turning back, okay, or Naomi is changing her course. And actually, if you think again of the picture that we've used, it's actually the hand of God that is changing her course or that is changing her direction, and in a good way. Uh, if we can look and see that this is the hand of God which is moving in our lives, it's going to give us great peace and great comfort to know that ultimately I'm in his hand and he's doing what he wants to do for my good, obviously, and for his glory. So number one, beginning in verse six, we'll notice um, her direction. And uh, this is Naomi's direction, her direction. And her first direction here was to return to Bethlehem, to return to Bethlehem. This is where she had been. This was her home. This is where her husband Elimelech was from, Ephrathah, Judah, okay, right there in that uh, particular area. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law. This is after her uh, husband and her sons have died, after her husband died, and then the two sons married Ruth and Orpah, Malan and Chilion did, and then they both also died. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might, and there's the word, return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. 
And uh, I'll go ahead and read verse 7, but then come back and point out a few things. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And so the picture is this, that after her sons have died, we don't know how long it was, but but shortly um, would be the understood idea that uh, shortly afterward that she decided, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And it tells us why in just a moment. Uh, But she arose, okay, so it's basically that she has gathered up her things. Evidently, she either did not have a whole lot lot of stuff with her or she was not taking a whole lot of stuff with her as she's returning. So she arises with her daughters-in-law in order that she might return from the country of Moab. It's interesting there. Uh, a, a turn has two different things or two different ideas. Um, repentance is this way as well. Uh, I'm turning from one thing and to another. Okay. You notice how this starts out. She's returning from Moab, okay? She is turning from that place that historically we went through last week and saw all the different ways uh, that Moab had not been a good relationship with Israel. Anytime they had come together, there was some kind of sin or conflict. And so she's turning from that place, which was not a place of blessing. She's turning from that place. So she's returning from the country of Moab. And here's why. For she had heard How had that happened? We don't know. Evidently, there had been other travelers from Israel that had come through Moab. Uh, Somehow this has happened, but she has heard in the country of Moab. So where she's living with her daughters-in-law and with with her husband and sons now dead, she's heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord, notice that's all caps, okay, that's important. We always recognize that. It's referring to the Lord Jehovah. That's his name, okay, Um, had visited his people in giving them bread. The word visited is interesting here. Um, it's often a word that is used in relationship to oversight uh, or to shepherding. Uh, we think of it in a pastoral way or in a brotherly sort of way that we're going to go and visit uh, the fatherless and the widow, as, as it's said in James, or that we're going to visit those who are afflicted or who are sick. Um, and that's the idea of one who is showing compassion or one who is going to help and to encourage others. And that's obviously what the Lord was doing with his people here, uh, that he is visiting them. He's coming again to give them blessing. Uh, by the way, you've probably heard this uh, before as far as in Bible interpretation. It's called the law of first mention. Okay, what, what is that? Whenever you read a word in the, in, the, in the Bible for the first time, that's its original or its initial context. Sometimes the context will change throughout various usages. But here, the first place that this is used, this word, as far as pakad, it's the idea of visiting. Uh, Genesis 21.1, when the Lord visited Sarah to cause her to conceive as he had said. And so he came upon her and gave her a great blessing. Obviously, it was accomplished through her husband Abraham, but the Lord gave her conception as an elderly woman. One that it was past uh, happening uh, physically and biologically as um, Romans chapter 4 indicates that she was essentially dead and Abraham was essentially dead and God gave them children. But he came upon her and so with this he visited her as he had said he would and he fulfilled his promise that he had spoken the year before. Uh, And so the Lord has come then. And he is giving his people or has given his people, speaking of specifically not just the people in in Bethlehem or Ephrathah and Judah, uh, but the people of Israel. He's giving them bread. So the famine has ceased, okay? It has ended. By the way, think of what that means. And I may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but think of what that means in context with Boaz and the, the reapers who were in his field and then the gleaners that were there. This is the first crop, good crop, that they may have had. And you remember how long Elimelech, Naomi, and Malon and Chilean were down in Moab? 10 years. So this may be the first good crop that they've had in 10 years. 
And uh, so when Naomi or when Ruth goes to Boaz's field, he's probably in a pretty good mood. Uh, although on the other hand, too, he may not have been feeling super generous with normal gleaners. There's still the Old Testament law that has to be obeyed, but it's not likely that he was telling his men all the time, leave more on the ground for them. Okay, because what would be in his mind? You remember what Joseph's responsibility was when there was famine in Egypt for the seven years of plenty? Uh, look, we need to save everything we can because there's a famine that's coming. Um, the people at this point, they're going to be very conservative. What do we know about all of our ancestors who lived through the, uh, through the Depression? Even, they were very frugal. Even once the Depression was over, okay, they were very, very frugal because they always had in their mind it might happen again. Okay? They did it. They were careful. I've, I've read of people taking tumbleweeds and pickling them. Read the book, The, the Worst Hard Time, and talks about that. Uh, but here, you can imagine that Boaz would have been thinking this might happen again. He's really pleased right now because the crops have returned, but he may not have been feeling super generous, okay, other than Ruth, okay? And, and by the way, that's supposition. The scripture doesn't point that out or doesn't say that. All of that to say we're coming back into this, that, that the Lord has visited his people in giving them bread. And so Naomi, her direction is to return to Bethlehem. Verse 7, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was. So the direction is still returning from the place where she was in Moab and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return into the land of Judah. Now, the couple of phrases in verse 7. So they're going out of the place. Again, that's turning from Moab. Uh, and her two daughters-in-law with her. Now, this is an interesting thing. It almost seems that it would have been natural for the two daughters-in-law. They have no more connection to Naomi other than the dead husbands, which are her dead sons. Okay, It would seem natural that Moab is their place. It would seem natural, uh, as Naomi uh, hinted to them or suggested to them a little bit later, uh, that they would stay with their mothers or that they would go back to their own homes. Uh, that would seem the normal and the natural thing. But here, their first inclination was to go with her. Okay. What is it that caused that? I don't know exactly. The scripture is not clear in that, but we do recognize that they were ready to go with her. Um, and uh, between Naomi and Ruth, I think at this point, Ruth is already at the point that she has turned away from the gods of Moab and she is ready to accept Jehovah as her God. Uh, and so that's what she's getting ready to do. Orpah seems to at least be thinking that way, but we don't know all that it is because she does eventually turn back. But her daughters-in-law are ready to go with her and they seem to even begin the journey. It seems as though they even start back on the journey. And then the end of verse 7, and they went on the way, okay, so they're traveling back to return unto the land of Judah. You notice the two different nuances there. They've turned, or or turned against or away from Moab, and now specifically at the end of verse 7, they are returning to Judah. Uh, you know what happens if a person turns away from something, but they don't replace it with something new or better? They backslide, okay? There's a vacuum that is created. You remember what Jesus was talking about with the Pharisees when he talked about uh, or he sp speaking to them uh, of the devil that left and then nothing happened and when, it, when they realize that it's swept and empty, they come back and bring more with them, okay? In the vacuum of the demons being cast out and then nothing replaces it, then there's a hole and even more come back and it's even worse. Just understand this, that when there is a turn away from something, there needs to be a turn to something as well. 
Okay, you, you can pick out all kinds of sins that might be a part of a person's life. By the way, I, I'm, I'm not talking in, in, in an in a, uh, intentionally critical way of things such as Alcoholics Anonymous, okay, or whatever. It has done much good for many people. But one of the problems with people just turning away from alcohol and turning away from drugs and turning away from addictions is that it's not replaced with Jesus Christ. Okay, and if there is not something that is replacing what has been turned away from, that vacuum could be even worse than it was in the beginning. So they've turned away from Moab and they've returned to um, Judah or turning back to it or here at least Naomi is. I mentioned last week that we could add Naomi to our list of people who when they failed, and if you remember these people I preached on several weeks ago, Abraham failed in his task, Moses failed with his temper, David failed in his temptation, Peter failed with his tongue, Thomas failed in his trust. They all went back to where they should have been in the first place. And that's what Naomi's doing, okay? That's the picture of repentance. It's the picture of turning back to where a person should be. Sometimes when we've made a wrong turn, <laughs> the best thing to do is retrace our steps. Have you ever been lost driving uh, and you realize, and I would say this more driving uh, or less driving, but more in the woods, okay? I've been lost in the woods before hunting or mushroom hunting or just out hiking and doing whatever um, and uh, get lost. And I think, okay, I need to go back to where I was and pick up a familiar landmark, uh, like a tree or uh, a, a creek or something that I recognize. I go back to where I knew where I was and retrace my steps. And uh, nowadays with cell phones and with GPS, it just kind of reroutes for you and says, oh, here's the quickest way to get back to it, and we don't have to retrace our steps. Um, but spiritually, this is what Naomi is doing. She went back to the place where she knew the Lord was. She had heard that he had visited his people and giving them bread, and so she went back to where his presence was recognized. She went back to where his provision was, and then uh, she, again, recognized the place where she needed to be. So, number one, her direction was to return to Bethlehem. Verse 8, we'll pick up with number two. <clears throat> this is her demand, and th this is to Ruth and to Orpah to return to Moab. And uh, with this, this is not a demand, as we might say in a harsh sense, but this is what she commanded. Literally, the word go in verse 8 is an imperative. Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. Uh, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And uh, a couple of things in this. This is her demand or the expectation, what she instructs them to do. By the way, you understand that the first decision that Naomi made was a wise decision, okay? The decision to return from Moab and to return to Judah, uh, to go back to Bethlehem, that was a wise decision. Uh, that's what should, should be done. And, and by the way, what she instructs here to her daughters-in-law is not necessarily an unwise thing. Logically, it's a wise thing to do. The only thing that is a problem with this is that Naomi now loves these daughters and she's sending them back to the place where false gods are. But logically, this makes sense. What she tells them to do is not necessarily unwise in a physical sense or in a secular sense. Spiritually, this was not good for them. But this is what she tells them to do. Her demand to them was to return to Moab. You go back to that place. Some things about this. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each to her mother's house. And again, this is the place from which they've come, their mother's house or their parents. Uh, and now you go back there. And then she says this in verse 8. Um, this is a tremendous blessing. 
that she says, the Lord deal kindly with you. By the way, in the Old Testament culture and in the Jewish culture, a spoken blessing was a thing of importance and of value. Uh, fathers would do this for their sons, okay? They would do this on their deathbed. You remember Genesis 49, whenever Jacob is getting ready to die, all the things that he says about his son, some good, some bad. Uh, but he pronounces blessings upon them. Isaac was the same way. This was an, uh, an important thing to pronounce a blessing upon them. And so this is not just that Naomi is, uh, if you will, just saying something nice as they're departing, okay? She's actually and literally here pronouncing a blessing. The Lord, all caps, Jehovah, deal kindly with you, show grace and mercy to you. And then it's in comparison as ye have dealt with the dead. Speaking of her two sons, these husbands, okay, the, the ones who have died, she acknowledges of these women of Moab that you have dealt kindly and graciously and with compassion to these two sons, these two men who have died. And she says, with me. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic that, uh, and it's unfortunate, but in, in, in many families, in-laws are not always looked on with great appreciation. I will tell you this, uh, that uh, my mother-in-law is, is the, the best mother-in-law that I could have imagined. My father-in-law, uh, I could not imagine a better grandfather and a better friend. I'm thankful for him. Uh, we, we spend time on the phone together each week reading, um, and I'm just thankful for the opportunities that we have to spend time together. But not every family is like that. And in fact, we have lots and lots of mother-in-law jokes, okay? Uh, you know what they call a house that is like a one-bedroom, one-bathroom, kitchenette house that's off the regular house? They call it a mother-in-law house, okay? Uh, it, there's not always a good relationship. That's not the case with Ruth and Orpah and Naomi. By the way, even though Orpah went back to Moab eventually, she still is commended here for the way that she has dealt with her husband, the dead one, and then also her mother-in-law. So the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And uh, it's interesting in this, uh, the grace that Ruth was shown by God would actually be an answer to that. Orpah, I'm convinced if she would have stayed with him, would have also experienced the same grace and the same kind of blessing. She chose to go back, uh, but she wasn't, uh, in the human sense, she was not a bad daughter-in-law. Verse 9, the Lord grant you that ye may find rest. And again, here this is, would be the pronunciation of a blessing. Deal kindly with you. Verse 8, then the Lord grant you that ye may find rest. Each of you in the house of her husband. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The picture is, is that now they are in turmoil. They are widows. They, their means of a livelihood in the Old Testament context is gone now, but is acknowledging when you find a husband, you will be at rest. I think that tells us something about God's design for marriage. <clears throat> uh, the Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And there she's speaking prospectively. They don't have husbands, okay? But she is anticipating that they'll go back to Moab and that they would then have a new husband. And she even says, the Lord grant you that you would do this. It's almost as though she is saying, I would pray that God would give you a husband in Moab. Um, <clears throat> so she is pronouncing this blessing upon them. Verse 9, then she kissed them. Uh, and that would be the physical and, of course, the oriental idea where they're doing the cheek-to-cheek -cheek thing that is often taking place there. Uh, but she would have embraced them and kissed them. And they, this is Ruth and Orpah and probably Naomi combined, the three of them lifted up their voice and wept. Now, we can ask the question, was it just culture? Uh, you understand that in the uh, ancient times that there were people who were hired to be mourners at funerals. Uh, and so there were often displays of emotion which were just cultural and not necessarily genuinely emotional. Um, I think in this particular case that it probably was genuine. 
uh, from what Naomi has said, as far as that you have dealt kindly with the dead, you have dealt kindly with me. Uh, the Lord grant you that you may find rest uh, as she is doing this. It seems I think, that they have developed a close relationship. And in chapter 2 and following, whenever we see the conversations between Naomi and Ruth, we can see that they are very, very close. Uh, that though Naomi gives her advice and counsel as not only a Jewish woman, uh, where Ruth is a Moabite woman living in a Jewish culture there, uh, that still they are very close. They converse. They talk about everything. And so uh, this was probably a very genuine relationship that they, that they have here. But her demand, and by the way, this is all focusing on the construct or the structure of the word that we have six times in these verses, return, 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 return. Her first return was to go back to Jerusalem, or pardon me, to Judah, okay, Bethlehem and Judah. Now she is telling her daughters-in-law, her demand of them, her expectation is that they would return to Moab, okay? They've already walked part of the way. We don't know how far. Um, the speculation is, is that they could have traveled anywhere from 30 to 70 or 80 miles as far as between Moab and Bethlehem. How far have they walked when she tells them we just know it's far enough that she says to them, return to Moab. Now, notice the third thought here, as far as after her demand for their return to Moab, their deferral, verse 10, and that was they wanted to return with Naomi. It's interesting to have this phrase here. And they said unto her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And uh, you notice that the beginning of this, the, the subject, and they said unto her, that's both of them, okay? Orpah and Ruth were both saying this to her. What is it that caused Orpah to decide to go back? The scripture does not ultimately reveal that. We don't know what it is. But at first, Orpah seemed to be willing to do this. And they said unto her, surely, or with assurance, it is our determination. We're settled on doing this, that we will return with thee. They've never been there. They've never been to Jerusalem. But they're saying, when you return, we're going to accompany you. We're going to be with you. Uh, we will return with thee. And they said specifically, unto thy people. And that's the beginning of what we'll look at next week whenever ever Ruth says, your people are going to be my people, your God is going to be my God, your place where you die, I will die, and so forth. And so this is the beginning of this. For Orpah, it does not stay that way, but it does for Ruth to do this. But their deferral, they said, no, we're going to return with you. We're going to go with you. And that brings us quickly to number four, which has several different points with it. Uh, but this is her despair. And that comes again to verse 13, the end of that, when she said, It grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Her despair, and that is that God has turned against me or God is against me. Now, as I pointed out in the introduction, I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, I think that was her perspective. It seems like God is against me. But the reality is, is God was returning her. Um, by the way, you think of that in Psalm 23, uh, that he um, uh, returns or he restoreth my soul for his name's sake. He returns or he restores my soul on account of who he is. Because he's Jehovah, because he's God, because I'm his sheep and because he's my shepherd, he turns me. She recognized this as the hand of God against her. But really, he was directing her. <clears throat> and we could take that in Psalm 23 in several different ways. Because thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. <laughs> okay, so notice here her despair or what she perceives here. Her despair, her perception is that God has turned against me. And Naomi said in verse 11, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go? Uh, uh, or why will you go with me? Are there yet more sons in my womb that you may be that they may be your husbands? Turn again. There's that word, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. <clears throat> if I should, 
say, I have hope. If I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown nine months from now and then another 20 years after that? These ladies then would probably be in their 40s, okay, twice the age or more of their new husbands. Uh, would you stay for them from having, uh, from having husbands? Uh, in other words, would you wait from them and not have other ha husbands? Or would you um, uh, abstain from all others and waiting for them? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Uh, there's a couple of arguments that Ruth gives to her daughter-in-law, uh, daughters-in-law, as far as why they should return to Moab, but also her belief against uh, about why God is against her. Uh, notice the first reason why she thinks they should go back. I'll have no more sons. Okay, that's the first thought that I have in here. Turn again, my daughters, uh, which is interesting, her daughters-in-law, but she calls them daughters. Why will you go with me? What is the motivation for you to come with me? As if she's thinking that they think that I would be able to give them a husband once I'm back in Judah. That's not going to happen. Why will you go with me? Are there yet more sons in my womb? She's indicating from this that she is past the age of childbearing, aside from the fact that she's a widow. There's nothing that is going to make this happen. Are there yet more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And she says again here in verse 12, just as in verse 11, turn again. It's the same word, shub. Turn again, my daughters, go your way or go back your way, for I am too old to have an husband. Okay, so her, there's her first argument. I'm too old for this. I'll have no more sons. You have no hope with me. It's interesting that there was hope with God's design. Okay, and that's the kinsman redeemer. Okay, that, that is the design that God had set up for the people of Israel. But Naomi wasn't thinking of Ruth as being a part of Israel, as a part of the covenants that God had made with Israel, though that she would say that when she says, your God is going to be my God. She has basically adopted by faith the design of God, the law of God, the people of God. She has adopted all of that herself. But all of that to say, she is saying, there's nothing I can do for you. I can't provide hope for you. I have no more sons. I'll have no more sons. I'm too old to have a husband. The first argument. The second argument is, is you wouldn't wait anyways. Okay. <laughs> even, even if I could have a husband and even if I could have children, are you going to forsake all other men that would be vying for your emotions and for your affections over the next 20 years? Are you going to wait for them? And she's saying, no, that's not going to happen. If I should say, I have hope, there is a possibility of me having a husband tonight and also bearing more sons. Even if that was a possibility, verse 13, would you tarry for them till they are grown or till they were grown? Would you stay from them or stop from having a husband because of them? No, my daughters. Nay, my daughters. She's saying to them, you're not going to wait anyways. Okay. Uh, now, what she says is accurate. It's logical. It makes sense. But she is presuming on who they were. She is presuming. There were many women in the Old Testament. We don't know of all of them, but I think of Judah and his sons uh, went through three of them, okay, with Tamar. Uh, and so there were women who would wait. Tamar waited at home of her father until the youngest son of Judah was ready to be married. And then when he wasn't given to her, okay, then she recognized the ill that was there. Um, but she's presuming on them, but she says of them, you won't wait. But here is the main thing that we recognize in her despair. And that the third thought is this, and, the, and this is not in your notes, by the way. She, her arguments, I'll have no more sons, you won't wait. And ultimately, God is against me. And essentially what she is saying here is, I don't think I want you to be connected to me because God is against me. Okay, She's essentially, and, and in her mind, probably logically saying, I'm a curse. 
okay? Or God has dealt bitterly with me. You don't want to be on my side. I'm, if you want to use this phrase, I'm a loser. Okay, things don't go well with me. You're going to be a whole lot better off to go back to your home in Moab, back to your mother's house if you want blessing or if you want to find rest with a husband. So her argument as far as in this is you don't want to be with me because God has dealt bitterly with me. Notice what she says here at the end of verse 13, for it grieveth me. And um, that word I mentioned to you at the beginning is the same root word for uh, Mara, which is bitter, or bitterly. Um, and uh, we could say this, I mean, as far as the verbal form, I'm embittered, okay? Uh, but again, I'm not using that in the same context that was warned against in Hebrew, uh, or in he- the book of Hebrews. I think she is just saying that my heart is in, the, the, is in a bitter sense, okay? Uh, or it is unpleasant. It's distasteful the way that life has been for me. It grieveth me much, or it's very bitter for me. Uh, greatly, she says, it grieveth me much or in abundance for your sakes, okay? Or I'm grieved. Uh, my heart is embittered in this, or my heart is greatly distasteful um, in, in all of this for your sakes. I wish that I could have provided a better life for you. I wish that my sons would have lived longer. I wish you would have known your father-in-law. I wish we could have experienced the blessings of God together. But she has said there, it grieves me much for your sakes, because of what you're not getting or what you have lost, it grieves me greatly for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. A couple of thoughts in that. Again, you notice the word there, the hand of the Lord, uh, in that particular phrase. And remember, God doesn't have a body as we recognize it. Jesus was the physical and earthly manifestation of him. Uh, And so this would be, if you want to call it a phenomenological interpretation through the eyes of men as they're looking at this and interpreting this, it would be recognizing the spiritual hand of God, that his supernatural, providential working, okay, uh, that normally would provide, as it has for the people back in Bethlehem, uh, that the hand of the Lord or the power of God, the working of the Lord, is gone out against me. Okay, and again, that's her perspective. That's what she's seeing. But ultimately, we see in her return to Jerusalem that God was working for her. Let me ask you a question. (laughs) If she had not returned to Bethlehem, what would have happened with Ruth? What would have happened with Boaz? What would have happened with her land? None of that would have been redeemed in the way it was. Now, um, providentially and in God's sovereignty, the Messiah would have been brought about the way he was. Okay, uh, God would have still accomplished that. But we can think hypothetically in, in looking at this that it was actually God's grace in guiding her back there. It was God's redemption that was bringing her back to Bethlehem. It was God and his mercy and his compassion that was bringing her back there so that Ruth would be joined with Boaz in marriage, so that their lands would be redeemed, so that they would then have offspring to be brought up into the name of the dead. It was God's grace that was doing that. But Naomi didn't see it at the time. She looked at it as his hand has gone out against me. Here's the thought I want to leave with you in this, that sometimes when we feel like God's hand is against us, it's actually directing us. And that's what's happening here. She's returning from Moab. She's returning to Judah. She's returning to the place where God is providing. She is returning to the place where God's grace, God's mercy, and God's redemption is going to redeem her.
and her daughter-in-law and her family. So God's hand, when it seems like it may be against you, is actually guiding you. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would help us to learn from the life of Naomi and of Ruth, and even as we think of the other characters in this little book, Malon and Chilion, and as well as um, Elimelech and then Orpah, Father, all of these, Boaz, I pray that you would help us to learn the lessons from these passages of Scripture. I pray especially this evening when it seems like you have dealt bitterly with us, when it seems like your hand is against us, I pray that you would help us to remember that as the one who is our loving Heavenly Father, that you are doing it to guide us. And your whole purpose is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would help us to have this kind of perspective when we face difficult times. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can take your prayer list.